Well, we continue this morning on our journey through the book of Hebrews. My sermon this morning based on Hebrews 10, 15 through 18, a sermon I've entitled, Where There Is Forgiveness, Where There Is Forgiveness. Chapters 8 and 9 and 10 of Hebrews are an attempt by the author to persuade the readers of the superiority of Jesus, particularly in his sacrifice. He writes them in an effort to convince them not to fall away from so great a salvation. Both the beginning and the conclusion of this effort to persuade the readers both quote the prophet Jeremiah and both quote the same prophecy from the 31st chapter of Jeremiah's book. The quotes provide, as it were, a bookends of the argument. Now, in chapter 10 specifically, the author has argued for the inadequacy of the law. It was a shadow of the good things to come. The author has moved from there to describing how the repeated sacrifices of the Mosaic Covenant had been superseded, as had the Levitical priests. It was Jesus and his once-for-all sacrifice which had surpassed them. In today's passage... The argument is concluded. It's concluded by pointing to the adequacy of the new covenant provisions and the results that we as believers can partake in. So let us consider the end of this major section of Hebrews, a three-chapter argument by looking at verses 15 through 18 specifically. Hebrews 10, 15 through 18. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering sin. The main idea from this passage is a simple one. The Holy Spirit bears witness to the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice. The Holy Spirit bears witness to the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice. So let us this morning consider the Spirit, and let us consider why the author has injected him into his argument at this point. The Holy Spirit, point number one, verse 15, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bears witness concerning the superiority of Jesus and his sacrifice. We read, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. As the author of Hebrews begins to conclude this argument, this argument that he has laid out for us over the course of several chapters, he enlists perhaps the most powerful evidence he has, the testimony of the Holy Spirit. We might consider the Holy Spirit the expert witness that the author of Hebrews enlists to convince the jury of his readers in regards to the argument that he has made. Now, nobody is on trial here. And yet, as the author makes his closing arguments, He draws the reader's attention to the witness who can speak most authoritatively 
to this situation. And that witness is the Holy Spirit. Now, it would be natural for Scripture to attribute the words of Scripture to God. It is God's Word, after all. So, in presenting the words of prophecy from Jeremiah as the words of the Holy Spirit, we are reminded that the Holy Spirit is God. Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity, one God and three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we are also reminded that the Scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit. We read in 2 Peter chapter 1, 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit explicitly bears witness and testifies to several things in Scripture. Generally, the Spirit is said explicitly to testify in regards to Jesus. We read in John chapter 15, verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So Jesus said about the witness or the testimony of the Spirit. The Spirit would bear witness of Jesus. And specifically, he bears witness to Jesus and his work of salvation. Listen to 1 John chapter 5, verses 5 through 12. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so the Spirit we see is testifying. He's testifying to Jesus. He's testifying to Jesus' work of salvation. In 1 John, it's even called the testimony of God. Now further to bearing witness to Jesus and Jesus' work of salvation, we also see in the New Testament that the Spirit bears witness to our adoption into God's family through Jesus. Romans 8, verses 15 through 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, these examples explicitly speak of the Spirit's testimony. They speak of His bearing witness. And they run in the same stream as what we see in the book of Hebrews. The Spirit bears witness to the superiority of Jesus 
and his sacrifice to save. Now, before we follow this idea forward, can we stop and make note of how it is that the Spirit bears witness? How it is that the Spirit bears witness to believers? In this case, those initially who were recipients of the book of Hebrews. We see that the Spirit bears witness to them. The Spirit gives testimony through Scripture. Let's not overlook that fact. The Spirit bears witness to believers through Scripture. Now, I do not rule out that the Spirit can also bear witness and testify in subjective ways to believers. I believe that is something the Spirit does. But we see in the book of Hebrews that the Spirit employs God's Word. It's God's Word that He uses to communicate and testify and bear witness to God's people. Now, this morning, as a means of applying this text, I would like to share a story that John Piper shared on his website in an article regarding hearing God speak. It's a fairly long excerpt, but I think it's powerfully needed in our day. It's entitled, The Morning I Heard the Voice of God. This is what Piper wrote. Let me tell you about a most wonderful experience I had early Monday morning, March 19, 2007, a little after 6 o'clock. God actually spoke to me. There is no doubt that it was God. I heard the words in my head just as clearly as when a memory of a conversation passes across your consciousness. The words were in English, but they had about them an absolutely self-authenticating ring of truth. I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God still speaks today. I couldn't sleep for some reason. I was at Shalom House in northern Minnesota on a staff couple's retreat. It was about 5.30 in the morning. I lay there wondering if I should get up or wait till I got sleepy again. In his mercy, God moved me out of bed. It was mostly dark, but I managed to find my clothing, got dressed, grabbed my briefcase, and slipped out of the room without waking up Noel. In the main room below, it was totally quiet. No one else seemed to be up. So I sat down on a couch in the corner to pray. As I prayed and mused, suddenly it happened. God said, come and see what I have done. There was not the slightest doubt in my mind that these were the very words of God. In this very moment, at this very place, in the 21st century, 2007, God was speaking to me with absolute authority and self-evidencing reality. I paused to let this sink in. There was a sweetness about it. Time seemed to matter little. God was near. He had me in his sights. He had something to say to me. When God draws near, hurry ceases. Time slows down. I was being enveloped in the love of his personal communication. The God of the universe was speaking to me. Then he said, as clearly as any words have ever come into my mind, I am awesome in my deeds towards the children of men. My heart leaped up. Yes, Lord, you are awesome in your deeds. The words came again just as clear as before, but increasingly specific. I turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. 
They rejoiced in me who rules by might forever. Suddenly, I realized God was taking me back several thousand years to the time when he dried up the Red Sea and the Jordan River. God himself was narrating the mighty works of God. He was doing it for me. He was doing it with words that were resounding in my own mind. There settled over me a wonderful reverence. A palpable peace came down. This was a holy moment and a holy corner of the world in northern Minnesota. God Almighty had come down and was giving me the stillness and the openness and the willingness to hear his very voice. The very words of God were in my head. They were there in my head just as much as the words that I am writing at this moment are in my head. They were heard as clearly as if at this moment I recalled that my wife said, come down for supper whenever you are ready. I know those are the words of my wife, and I know these are the words of God. Think of it. Marvel at this. Stand in awe of this. The God who keeps watch over the nations, like some people keep watch over cattle or stock markets or construction sites, this God still speaks in the 21st century. I heard his very words. He spoke personally to me. What effect did this have on me? It filled me with a fresh sense of God's reality. It assured me more deeply that he acts in history and in our time. It strengthened my faith that he is for me and cares about me and will use his global power to watch over me. Why else would he come and tell me these things? And then Piper says, it has also increased my love for the Bible as God's very word. Because it was through the Bible that I heard these divine words. And through the Bible, I have experiences like this almost every day. The very God of the universe speaks on every page into my mind and your mind. We can hear his very words. And best of all, they are available to all. If you would like to hear the very same words I heard on the couch in northern Minnesota, read Psalm 66, verses 5 through 7. That is where I heard them. Oh, how precious is the Bible. It is the very word of God. In it, God speaks in the 21st century. This is the very voice of God. By this voice, he speaks with absolute truth and personal force. By this voice, he reveals his all-surpassing beauty. By this voice, he reveals the deepest secrets of our hearts. No voice anywhere, anytime, can reach as deep or lift as high or carry as far as the voice of God that we hear in the Bible. It is a great wonder that God still speaks today through the Bible with greater force and greater glory and greater assurance and greater sweetness and greater hope and greater guidance and greater transforming power and greater Christ-exalting truth than can be heard through any voice in any human soul on the planet from outside the Bible, end quote. Brothers and sisters, I do believe in the subjective witness of the Spirit to us. But I understand that this subjective witness of the Spirit is wrought with difficulties, particularly difficulties associated with us, because we are grossly sinful and we are appallingly selfish in our reception. And so I glory in the grace of God that he has given us his written word. And his written word represents God speaking directly to each one of us. 
Let us be people that daily hear God speak. And let's be people who are in God's word so that that can happen. Moving on, what does the Holy Spirit, who speaks the very words of God through Scripture, what does the Spirit testify to in these verses in Hebrews? Well, one of the things he testifies to is our next point, the new covenant. Verse 16a, the new covenant. The testimony of the Spirit is in regards to the new covenant. The words which represent the witness of the Spirit are a quote from Jeremiah, as I have suggested. The author of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah this way. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and I write them on their hands. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now this quotation from Jeremiah is clearly a reference to the new covenant. In fact, it is one of the most notable, if not the most notable, Old Testament references to the New Covenant. Now, I think the exact quote from Jeremiah is helpful. It comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, where we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Clearly, the Spirit testifies to a new covenant because it is not like the covenant that God made with the forefathers when he brought them out of Egypt, a reference to the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant, as we have learned over the chapters we have considered the past few months, the Mosaic covenant was insufficient. And it was insufficient because of the unfaithfulness of God's people. But the Spirit testifies to a new covenant, to the new covenant. And referencing, quoting the passage from Isaiah, the Spirit lays out a comprehensive picture of this new covenant. There's at least five aspects of the new covenant that Jeremiah gives to us in his prophecy. First, the perennial problem of disobedience and hard-heartedness against the Lord finds its remedy and finds its fulfillment in the new covenant. Second, the new covenant ensures that the instruction of God will be internalized. It will be written on the hearts of God's people. Third, the covenant relationship with God is a direct result of the work of God. He is the one who inscribes on the heart. Fourth, the new covenant comes with a new covenant community. And it is distinguished from all other covenant communities because in this community, community, all know God, from the least of them to the greatest. And fifth, Hebrews tells us, as it brings to light this testimony of the Holy Spirit, 
that again, the old covenant is obsolete. God has not affirmed or upheld or reestablished the old covenant, but rather he's inaugurated a new one. And all of this, the basis for it is the forgiveness of sins. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. And so the author of Hebrews is focusing really on two things. He's focusing on the heart work of the covenant and the forgiveness of sins. So let's consider those this morning. Point number three, changed hearts. Verse 16b, the great high priest Jesus, through his superior sacrifice of the new covenant, has changed the hearts of God's people. The internal work of the new covenant pertains to the heart of God's covenant people. In the old covenant, ineffectiveness, insufficiency reigned. And it reigned because God's people continually broke the covenant. They were unfaithful. And that is contrasted with the new covenant where God's instructions are written on our hearts. And that points to a new ability to live faithfully. The newness of the new covenant doesn't point to anything new in God. It doesn't indicate a a change in God's standard of righteousness. What is new about the new covenant is the ability of both partners to remain faithful instead of just God. The new covenant provides what it requires. Jason Meyer, in his book, The End of the Law, wrote this, the difference in the covenants is owing to the fact that God deals with the same sinful people in a remarkably different way. By creating the faithfulness for which he calls through the new covenant which is inaugurated by the atoning death of Christ and carried forward by the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this idea of God's work in the new covenant being one in which God's people are changed so that they can obey is confirmed in other Old Testament passages on the heart of God's people in the new covenant. In the very next chapter of Jeremiah, we read, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Then we can turn to the book of Ezekiel in chapter 36 and verse 26 and 27 and read this. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So we see that the spirit testifies to the superiority of the sacrifice of Jesus by pointing to this new covenant promise of changed hearts for God's people. Now, the other focus of the Spirit and his bearing witness is the forgiveness of sins. And that's our last point this morning, forgiven sins, verses 17 and 18. The great high priest Jesus, through his superior sacrifice, has forgiven the sins of God's people. 
I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So the other focus of Hebrews and its quoting of Jeremiah is this final and complete forgiveness of sins. It is the decisive dealing with sin. The decisive dealing with sin, which really leads into that constant refrain in the book of Hebrews, better. It's through the forgiveness of sins that Jesus has offered a better sacrifice. Chapter 9, verse 3. This is the reason why we have a better hope. Chapter 7, verse 19. It's because of this better covenant, chapter 7, verse 22, that we can have our sins forgiven. The full and final forgiveness of sins is something this side of eternity we will never fully appreciate. And yet we can be helped by understanding what the author of Hebrews concludes his argument with. That is, the decisive forgiveness found in Jesus through his sacrifice has made the old covenant and its sacrifices redundant and unnecessary and obsolete. We see this again in verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. There's no longer any offering because no more offerings are needed. Christ has dealt with our sins conclusively. Now, even after the time of Jesus, sacrifices would continue to exist, and they even exist today in some religions, but they are not effective. And more importantly, they are not necessary. Now, this week, as I considered the idea of things that no longer exist because they are not needed, I came across an interesting article entitled, Things from the Year You Were Born That Don't Exist Anymore. Things from the year you were born that don't exist anymore. Now, it started in in 1918, and the very first one it suggested was a little bottle. It had pictures for each of these things, a little bottle. And on that bottle, you could see in big words, radium. And this bottle was like a daily dose of radium that you were supposed to take every day to keep healthy. Needless to say, it doesn't exist anymore, perhaps because it causes cancer. But then I went to the year of my birth, 1972, and it listed the egg toaster as something that was created that year and no longer around. And it had a picture, and it looked like a toaster. But apparently, you were supposed to put eggs in the toaster, push down the button, and wait for them to come up. Now, obviously, it was short-lived because I never saw one of them. I was born in 72, and by the time I was old enough to remember anything, these were gone. But someone invented a toaster meant for cooking eggs. Well, it's not hard to understand. That wasn't necessary. And not only was it not necessary, I'm assuming it was ineffective. I mean, I don't know how they worked, but they had the slot. So I assume you cracked the egg and dropped it in there and pushed down the button and up would pop your cooked eggs. But it wasn't necessary and it wasn't effective. There were better ways, more effective ways to cook eggs. And therefore, the egg toaster wasn't necessary and therefore, it doesn't exist anymore. And this is the case with offerings and sacrifices. They weren't ultimately effective. There was a better way to deal with sin. And thus, once that better way came, there is no longer any offering for sin. Sins have been dealt with completely 
conclusively and continually since Christ died on the cross and was buried and rose from the dead. Unbeliever, if you're here this morning with us, thank you for being here. I want you to understand this. There is full and final forgiveness for your sins because of Jesus Christ. For all those who come to Christ through repentance and faith, he will forgive their sins. And those sins are forgiven through the sacrifice he offered, the sacrifice of himself on the cross. And there is no other means of forgiveness. And no other means is necessary if you receive Christ. And so I encourage you today to do so even right now. And believer, let us remember and rejoice in this wonderful news of the forgiveness of sins. It is not a partial forgiveness. It is not a temporary forgiveness. No, the sacrifice of the Son of God was not a remedy of half measures. It was an atoning sacrifice, full and complete, winning salvation through the forgiveness of sins for believers to the uttermost. And I think as we reflect on this great salvation, as we reflect on this forgiveness of sins, it can be a huge encouragement to you in many different ways. Particularly this morning, I'm thinking about the encouragement to evangelize, to share the gospel with other people. Think about your forgiveness. That should be motivation and encouragement to share that good news with other people. We can be those beautiful footed heralds of good news. And I know it's easy for us to become scared or maybe even pessimistic about the message we have, but think of it full forgiveness of sins access to God, eternal life. As we remember these great blessings, we can be strengthened and motivated to share the gospel with those around us. And I think that's important because we all know that Christmas is often the time when we get more opportunities to share the gospel than any other time of the year. And so perhaps some meditation by us on the forgiveness of our sins in Christ will encourage us to share that news with others this season. Brothers and sisters, we see in this passage the Holy Spirit, God himself, testifies to the superiority of the new covenant, superior through its internal work on the hearts of God's people that they might obey, superior in its full and final dealing with sin through the sacrifice Christ offered in his death superior in its mediator, who is the great high priest, who is the king over all, who is the great savior of God's people, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for yet another opportunity for us to reflect on our great savior and the great work of salvation that he has accomplished. And I pray that your spirit would help us with that. Father God, would your spirit also help us to hear you speak through your word? Would your spirit help us to be in your word daily, God? And would we recognize those of the very words of God? Help us with this, I pray. 
And I pray, Father God, that you would help us to rejoice and revel in forgiveness. I pray, Father God, we would never grow tired of considering that great work of redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. God, help us. Help us to see our daily need of the forgiveness of sins as well as our eternal need for the forgiveness of sins. And I pray, Father God, that your spirit would help us. Help us in regards, particularly at this time of year, to recognize despite our perhaps fear or despite our pragmatic pessimism in regards to our message, that we have the words of eternal life. We have the words which can bring through your spirit the truth of forgiveness, the truth of access to you, and the truth of eternal life. And so I pray that you would help us. Help us to see the opportunities to share that good news and help us have courage to take those opportunities. And we look to you to do great works through them. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.